Hello, I'm Claire and welcome to Cardicast, a glam podcast brought to you by New Cardigan. Our October Melbourne Cardi Party featured Joe Porter, CEO of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre, an iconic and historical Melbourne landmark that supports women through creative experiences, community resources and the power of connection. The building itself has multiple spaces and is located in the CBD. We were one of a few events that were being hosted that evening, so our apologies if the audio is a little bit noisy. Hello everybody! Welcome to this month's new Cardigan event at the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. That's the one. Excellent. So this is Jo Porter, the CEO, who will be chatting with us today. So we'll let you start. Thank you. The building sort of is its own monument identity, I suppose, and it's not a museum in the, in or a, a record or an archive in in the way that um, you might often visit and or work in in um, a sort of library or archive or museum um, spaces. So what we are really is a living engagement with the legacy of women who all donated a shilling right across the state to build the first women's hospital that was run for women and it was originally built in quite a small building a little bit further up Lonsdale Street and opened in the late um, 1800s. The main Melbourne hospital was on this site but didn't completely cover the block um, at first but gradually the block from Swanson to Russell and right over to Little Lonsdale, so through to the State Library, was covered by towers of this kind. And then there was a tennis court and other sort of outdoor facilities for patients and staff and so on out there. The regular Melbourne Hospital moved during the early 1940s and the women's hospital moved into the hospital that covered this whole block and it really it stayed with those um, for women by women dedication and was certainly a place where you know it was a maternity hospital the Jesse McPherson hospital was one of the big um, was next door that was the wing where I, a lot of women including me um, of, and of my age and a little a lot there, I guess we're born in the next block where that um, office tower is now. The building also really provided patch up and emergency health to women who had had abortions over in Little Burke Street and come here to be patched up after things went wrong. Into the 60s and 70s, it was where IVF began, it was where. Well, Auntie Carolyn, who um, is one of the Bunurong um, elders, is the mother of the first Aboriginal IVF child that was, was created and, and also born in, in the hospital. Gradually, as the medical system was rationalised and the suburbs extended out, it became apparent that the hospitals themselves as buildings weren't necessarily keeping up with the ways that hospitals move patients around, um, but also that it was such a schlep into the city for people to come that um, there was a big movement in the 70s to get hospitals built out in the suburbs so that people didn't have to travel as far. So the Alfred and, the, and St Vincent's are really the big 
and then the cluster in Parkville are really the big inner hospitals but um, Monash centred its its um, women focused care out of Clayton and Prince Henry's was closed down and so on so the building became effectively derelict for quite some time during the um, early to mid um, eight, uh, 1980s and then there was a big push as building developers started getting their, um, you know, taking a look at the site and trying to figure out how they might um, make the most of it and approaching the state government. There was a big push by women over really the course of, of sort of six or eight years to preserve this this or all of it as a, as a building for women and then gradually they got chiselled back and in 1994 this tower or pavilion was preserved but the others were raised and as you can see this office and shopping centre now surrounding us. As an exercise in urban planning I would say it was kind of remarkably poor. The buildings around here haven't or are not standing the test of time. They're doing a lot of renovations and so on. But also there's a wind sort of cyclone that travels around this building which keeps which effectively keeps it damp because it never gets any sunlight. So even though we've got the lovely little garden space out there, we only get sun for about an hour a day just when it's there as a sort of a stripe down the side. You can see where the green leaves are is, is where the sun is. And then down that western side, none of it gets any sun. And there's been a sort of a how do you deal with... Oh no, I'll come, I'll come to that later. But the kind of the way that the external areas of the building have been preserved has has changed over the years and I've been putting in a um, or putting together a um, grant application for the City of Melbourne and the National Trust to and that is around restoring the front garden area because all of the railings actually got sent up to Parkville um, and the garden actually changed I, from what it looks like from old photographs Roughly every 10 or 12 years, the garden changed quite radically. And so now being able to say, well, how do we restore a garden? It's like, well, which which bit are we going to, you know, or which era is the sort of um, authentic era? And that's actually been a theme throughout the restoration period because, in fact, the hospital working here pushed things in and out of doorways and moved doorways around and... Um, actually the building leaked for quite a long time so there was a lot of damage and then the hospital fixed it and all those sorts of things so it's quite a good lesson in it or in well when you you know when you preserve a building how do you or what do you preserve it to and what what are the standards you take it to but also and I suppose this is the thing that I'm working with now is that what is the building for the future as a as a monument that is actually also about a long legacy of women who paid or donated their one shilling to get a women's hospital built in Melbourne and then worked here, trained here, were treated here and now the building is a home for organisations that include um, ourselves, and I'll talk a little bit about our activities in a second, but we uh, manage the building which was um, given to a trust which was created in 1994 by a state 
government acts, so many of you will work for statutory bodies and understand some complexities around that. So we have a trust that is of 12 people, uh, I think a third, it's a third of them directly appointed by the minister and the others all actually require approval by the governor, governor and council. So we can be political or become part of a, a political conversation quite easily as well as being an organisation of our own. So there's, we sort of walk a fine line in that area because everyone, again, has a different idea of what a building like this actually should be. The Act set us up to be of service to women and refers to women's health, but it talks about women's health and facilities, but there's commas and all sorts of things. So we actually have a very broad remit because we don't have the resources to provide all of those things and, and in fact, there are specialist organisations that do all of that much better than we ever will. So we house organisations that do that kind of thing. So Fitted for Work is here um, and they basically work in raising money for um, people who are um, in need of a bit of a lift in terms of their own financial management and how to sort of organise their life, but also how they might approach getting a job. And they sort of started out by working um, with people who needed a wardrobe and they've now extended that into consultations around clothing and collect donations of, of clothing for people to wear to work. But then they also take them through job interview preparation and sort of managing paychecks and all those sorts of things. So they're here as our um, Domestic Violence Victoria, which is the peak body of all of the domestic violence organisations in, in the state. Emily's List, which collects money for and lobbies for female politicians um, who are running for all levels of government for the Labor Party. Um, counterpart. counterpart does counselling for of women on a sort of peer-to-peer Level So they recruit volunteers who have had an experience of cancer and then set up counselling sessions for other women who are going through an experience of cancer. Uh, Casa House is part of the Women's Hospital and does sexual assault counselling, not emergency counselling, but appointment-based free counselling. And um, who else am I? Oh, Avery Cancer Australia, which is... Um, in the, the does an enormous amount of fundraising around um, research, and they're really focused on those genetic um, links between ovarian cancer and um, are raising an enormous amount of money and working with the Walter and Eliza Hall Institute around that sort of research project, but also do you know encouraging people to get checks and then um, support services if people get ovarian cancer. So. We, as a centre, do have a sort of dual responsibility, which is managing the building and then working out, and and which includes managing our tenants um, and all those sorts of things, but also a sense of, okay, well, what can a building... How does a building have meaning? And I think that that's been something that the organisation itself has really grappled with. Um, over its history and that that can be influenced by which government's in power and therefore which bunch of trustees is on the um, or in the saddle but it also means it's also meant that um, we've been able to I suppose focus on where gaps have been seen 
that other organisations aren't filling. And where we are now is really look at looking at a situation where, you know, it's fortunately slash unfortunately domestic violence and a, num- and a number of other health-related areas are being covered in an expert way and the state government is supporting those organisations very um, solidly at the moment, which sort of allows us to look at other areas of engagement. And one of the things that we feel really strongly is that having fun is really important and that um, coming to the building for counselling or when, you know, when things have gone wrong is not also recognising that there's some really amazing women doing really amazing things, but there's also just regular women and people who identify as women and men who support those women who just want to kind of get out and see things and so or have interesting conversations or and so um we're really now focusing on i suppose small events like this and and working with organizations such as yourselves but also doing things like we had a women's iftar during ramadan last year oh sorry it feels like last year it was in may um (laughs) And there was a hundred, the lift wasn't working and so we put a long skinny table all the way down the hallway and had a dinner that was for free and women of the most incredible um, array of ethnicities, not all Muslim but mostly Muslim and there's dancing and a DJ and a tablet player and great food and it was this sense of, of exchanging goodwill and ideas and listening and having a chat in a way that what we hope we'll be able to keep repeating around that sort of sense of having a network of people that you don't necessarily meet with all the time. They're not your family, they're not your workmates, they might not be your, you know, the people that you worship with. On the other hand, they give you links out into the community and in the by doing that mean that there are links between different parts of the community who might be supportive if you need that kind of support, but there might also just be people that you ring up and say, oh, you know, my kid's being a real devil and won't study, you know, you mentioned something about that, how did you do it? And just sort of testing the water. And I think um, that that, so for example, we will have, um, be working with, and I'll send it all out to you, this would be good, to have a thinker in residence so that we have someone who's just kind of thinking and giving us their ideas about, for example, what does the Women's Centre of the future look like? Is it a place where you go and get services or is it a broadcasting centre or is it a research centre or a publication centre or something like that? But also having, um, for International Women's Day, we're researching a whole lot of choirs and scheduling them over the course of the whole week before International Women's Day and really encouraging those choirs to come and be prepared to help or teach other visitors some music so that they can have a little sing together and then get off, you know, go along, get on with their lives for the rest of the day. And so do things that actually create a sharing of cultural things that aren't necessarily aspirational or I just had this, I don't want anyone to say the word inspirational. Like I'm sick of being that person, you know, the, we don't all want to be that person who everyone goes, oh, look, they're so fabulous and they've got 12 children and they, you know, run a amazing business. And, you know, it's actually, it's the people who live in Melbourne who live in the donut. We're not all, you know, looking at our superannuation statement and going, yes, okay. <laughs> 
but well, most people are doing really interesting things one way or another, and linking those those people is kind of what we're about. So that there's a place to have fun that's sort of on that golden mile between Melbourne Uni and the NGV. That there are a lot of things for free, and um, you know it might be reading related or it might be visual arts or it might be dancing or it might be whatever but that the, it is is that kind of thing but focused on on that sort of social well-being as opposed to um you know direct cancer or something along those lines so um as you can imagine our archive is sort of rich but all it is actually in fact very small because the hospital owned all the records that then went off to Monash. So a lot of our visual record is what we think of as ours, but it's actually held by the State Library. There's some at Public Records Office and there's uh, some at Monash. So we have images um, of nurses and babies sort of stacked up and people um, lying in bunk beds out on the balconies when fresh air was very good and you know all those sorts of things there's been a couple of um sort of quite modest publications about the hospital which have been you know sort of uh, i don't know how to describe it but not a sort of contemporary historical approach more like i would say if it was about a person it'd be a hagiography sort of quite laudatory called once called bricks and spirit um so you know quite lovely in terms of what's in there but not necessarily around the levels of meaning so for example one um, we did a little event which was um, meet the matriarchs during year and boy which is the city of melbourne's indigenous arts festival and several of the aunties from the um Wurundjeri and Wurundjeri people came and uh, and they invited other people from first nations um, background Maori or someone or as Australian or whatever to come and meet with them so we did morning tea and one of the aunties said to me oh, I haven't been back here since my baby died here where do I find my records and so in theory all of that should be with Monash but knowing actually who owns that and where it is and what the circumstances what those circumstances were was sort of a big it's a big hole and we're not necessarily tasked with that but it's something that i guess i've got on my back burner to figure out who who the gatekeeper is or whether that stuff all exists somewhere that's less sort of um you know, the fabulous sort of middle class and ruling class women who made it all wonderful. We haven't really read against the grain in terms of how real the building was and what actually happened here. And that it would be, you know, that sort of would be a really interesting kind of research project. Um, but in the meantime, Naomi very kindly gets out the photos and puts them on the walls when we don't have an exhibition out there. and. It's amazing how much a sort of social history, quite visual approach means to people that a lot of people, oh, you know, there'll be a tap on the door and I'll duck and cover and someone else will answer and they'll say, oh yeah, he was, you know, he was born here or his mum worked here and it's not all the sort of doctors and the pioneers. It might have been the, you know, someone who's, whose dad was the engineer 
when they did a when they were pulling it down, is that right? He was he was looking after the make safe kind of project. Um, and then the guys who replaced the lift get got all excited because the lift wasn't straight. And we, I was like, oh my God, it's not straight. But they're like, no, no, we just need longer cable because it has to go like that. <laughs> so there's all the sort of wonky things about an old building that also kind of come, come up into our, into our lives. Um, in terms of the exhibition, which is out there at the moment, that's sort of representative of one end of running um, a space which really um, gets programmed via expression of interest. We don't have, or the, we have a very light touch curation, um, which is somewhat driven by a don't trigger people who are coming here for sexual assault counselling. So, but that tends to tends to sort itself out. It's mostly work by women or people who identify as women. Um, although this group show is a mixture of men and women, the actual artwork itself has, well, the one before was a mixture of jewellery made with syringes and bottle stoppers and like hospital stuff. And then there's this, then towards the end of the year, we've actually, we're working with Georgina Humphreys who does public art um, so I kind of started figuring out how to work with, I suppose, professional artists, mixing it in with people who are doing a, an EOI. And Georgie does um, sort of installations that are made of fabric. And I'm doing that because they look like wind socks or stalactites or something. And she used to work at the Falls Festival just doing front of house. and after the festival would end each time she would collect all of the crappy tents that people had just apparently they just leave them at festivals <laughs> along with the rest of their rubbish and so she collected all of the tents and now makes these sort of like stalactites but it's um, they're all sewn together so that you get this big piece of joined up fabric that hangs down into the space and we're going to install it here in the front as a sort of a you know it's bit cheerful a bit Christmassy all the tents all that kind of stuff but a really nice kind of way of starting to bring art making that's public art as opposed to hanging on the wall kind of process-based work and I'm hoping to work with um, these artists who work in a way that they call um, slow art next year who are um, they do they make these giant weaving Oh, you know, those just a giant loom, and then they do a sort of woven thing with the random people who come through the building. So it looks like a, an installation when it's first set up, but it gradually gets a little bit more solid. So we've kind of got this mixture of art that's very much whatever someone's doing and finds out that they can exhibit here for free and they send in an EOI, and gradually also moving towards some work that. I feel and you know work with the rest of the team and kind of work towards making something that feels a little bit more statementy, but not ter- you know does not so yeah pretty enjoyable by the tenants, but also by people just walking through there and have to know anything about it. It's uh, it's funny <laughs> just walk through. We have a very small archive room upstairs where we have a lot of prints of photos and all that kind of thing. I'm going through the process now of 
thinking when I wake up in the middle of the night, how will I possibly get the rights or whether do I need to get the rights to the photo taken of the babies in like 1947 to make them into a postcard to sell and I'm thinking not but then I probably should ask someone you know those sorts of things so we're kind of going through those sorts of things as a process of rebranding and also opening a shop um, in the space that's currently called the conscious closet so that we can sort of run a, a what we're thinking of as a feminist maker space it won't really be called that but it is a way of kind of engaging with people who are making things from across the state because we're funded by the state government but really have been very focused on the CBD so um, being able to engage with uh, makers who want to sell some of their things and then we'll do some of their own merch and sell a few tea towels hopefully and, and so on but um, I bought an old vending machine for $150 on eBay that we're going to have an art art in a vending machine thing so that's where the postcards come in and <laughs> Hopefully, you know, have the rights and all that sort of stuff. Pre-1954, they're out. Thank you. <laughs> and so did the, per the person in them, unless they're famous, doesn't have a right. Like, if they go, that was me when I was born, right? That one. I this mean, an ethical question. Yeah. Really, rather than a copyright. Yeah. Question. yeah. Well, so, well, it's more like the, about who took the photograph yeah. and who's in it, because it's their intellectual opinions. Yeah. So that's I mean, where I you, need to go. You have mechanical rights for it because you have the, the, the photograph. It's yeah. So you, you have the right to the, the thing, but if you're reproducing it, then... Then I don't have the rights and then I have the money. It's intellectual property at that point, but if yeah. the intellectual property isn't in play, you're, you're, yeah. you're good, Yeah. essentially. Yeah, and if it's having copyright, yeah. it's interesting. Any photographs taken the Yeah. Good to know. The way around the ethical issue of, of the person is as long as they're not immediately recognisable as that person, as that person yeah. then you're kind of fine. And the money's going into a non-profit, I mean, in the scheme of things. Yeah, that's, that's really good to know. Because I had this terrible case, that, so my background was I worked in theatre before. I um, worked here, the last real job I had was in theatre, and the um, um, we decided to do an adaptation of a particular play which was out of copyright if it was written by the person it said it was written <laughs> by and then their wife popped up and said no I actually wrote that and he just used he just put his name on it and we're just like oh my god how is this like how is this and then you know they they, they asserted that they wrote notes and that if we went to the um Library of Congress, we would find the original copy that and the drafts and so on. And just like, okay, whatever, we'll just do another play. But it was a really interesting like, who went like that for the photograph? And you know, anyway, it's a very interesting area. Um, so that's probably about the end of my spiel. I think I, I started by saying we kind of feel like we're a monument, but not a collection. And we, well, what we do really have, I think, is a collection of stories that, that are heritage stories that haven't necessarily been tapped or explored or told in a way that um, work in a contemporary context and certainly the more contemporary historical or um, ways of telling history <coughs> haven't been applied to that, so hopefully someone does. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
Um, and in the meantime, we're commissioning some podcasts, which I think we're calling a podcalypse, which we're um, <laughs> <laughs> which are being written by um, two women who are comedians, and they are writing seventy-two questions based on that kind of idea that was in the New York Times of asking 32 que- the 32 questions that you have in a conversation and, and at the end you'll fall in love with the person because oh. you don't. So we, they can do 72 questions about the apocalypse um, and we'll see how dark that is, but <laughs> that's where we're going. Does anyone have any comments or questions? Or? Well, I'm. I kind of have a question, which oh, wow. is, um, you said that the um, hospital started with women donating a shilling um, in order to be able to get the building built to use the services. Was it free after that point? For it women was. Or? It was pretty much for free, sort of as low cost as possible. I think there was the outpatient service, and then and that that was pretty like an emergency room kind of thing. Um, I think people back in the day just didn't go to the doctor that often um, but yes it was intended to be a public hospital as opposed to a you know expensive thing. whoa anyone else no yeah is it difficult to manage the different tenants that you have is it can yes it can be very tricky so for example when we were working on our new strategy, like they, they were the stakeholders I really had to talk to. And for example, Casa House, who are doing counselling all day, don't want a whole, it don't really want us to up the use of the building because it will create noise and all that kind of thing. And so balancing, I suppose, the other two million people, women in the state who have a stake here versus, you know, the rights of the people coming to counselling. It's actually, you know, it's kind of like, oh. and so in a, in a lot of ways, and I'd say this in front of all the tenants, looking after their interests is my most pressing concern. And so when we had just had some building work done for about five months and had scaffolding and people chipping away at windows and stuff and working with the builders to come in at 6am and then stop work at 9 and only start again the next day once they'd finished counselling and all those sorts of things was very much a part of that kind of oh, okay that's that's a priority because then people I suppose who are have, you know things have really gone badly for them um, and then other than that it can be the mix of people so fitted for work is quite often seeing people who I don't know, I guess you'd say their the, the social framework has really come adrift or was, no. so we just might not share this, well, we don't, you know, one doesn't share the same values with everyone one comes across, but for example, there was an exhibition of um, ceramics and someone who came to fit for work just helped themselves to the ceramics and so, you know, that thing is like, oh, well, okay, so do we apply our don't steal things from the art gallery moment or is it, uh, oh well they're there so maybe that person just takes them and then you know, finding out that that person had actually been making or sort of collecting people to come and use the fitted for work services and then taking their clothes back from them and selling them and sort of uncover, you know, this 
there's the whole building full of do-gooders and then the sort of like the, the complexity of that is actually quite that's really interesting um so in fact most of the tenants are very well intentioned mostly very well educated and good negotiators so you know mostly we get along but it is juggling that kind of priorities of of people and sometimes we just think oh seriously (laughs) (laughs) with this sort of uh, space used to uh, started as a hospital uh, I imagine you probably get quite a few people who like you know have those associations with the place so they're like they're born here or they had kids here or like were treated here do you often get like inquiries from people who do want to see those records, like you mentioned being like the State Library or Monash. And how do you sort of work through those? Do you have like a close relationship with like with Monash or uh, Sylvie? No, I sort of wish we had a closer relationship with Monash. Um, and the, it tends to be ad hoc. So I'll be, I was standing out in the corridor the other day and a man came and said, oh, didn't birth, deaths and marriages used to be here? The answer is no, but like that's not really what he wants to hear. And then he's an older man, and he said, "But that's I thought it was here." And I'm like, "No, it's not here. I've got my final look up. It's in Collins. You know, it's at five ninety five Collins Street or whatever. It's way down the other end of town." But I know that there used to be a birth, death, and marriages office somewhere up there in Russell or Exhibition. So he might have just recognised the building, and all the buildings turned around and he came in. Um, we'll get questions from people about where something might be and mainly try to help them very specifically rather than just saying here contact Monash it'll be like Naomi quite often comes across something she's dealing with the public spaces but we're all kind of become somewhat accustomed to where to send people for various things. The weirdest one was someone coming to say they wanted to report themselves for having overstayed their visa. But there's somewhere where you can report yourself. I think it's in Queen Street and, that, and his English wasn't super great so I think he might have just looked up and seen Queen and I was like, no, there's a place over near the Queen Victoria Market actually where you can go and um, overstay your visa. Where in Monash are the records kept? Is it in the Monash archives or is it in a different I think part it's because it's that, medical? It's that one. Well, because it's medical, yeah. I yeah. think that that's, um, that's a whole other thing. And I think that probably Monash sent different bits to different... So IVF would have all gone to their Monash clip, whatever it's called. I think, and definitely don't quote me on this, but I think a lot of the records just... Got, went away, that they got damaged or they got wet or you know that they're just in a box somewhere and no one really knows where they are so for like for example with Auntie Sita, the woman who asked me about where her baby might have been buried I, you know just, I wouldn't even know where to start um, except that there is um, an Indigenous Studies program at Monash. And it's like, well, maybe someone's done a PhD, something, something. So that's on my list as well. <laughs> yeah. A lot of potential project, projects around yes. that, that archive, that archival material, and even whether there was some later 
to bring some of that into here where people can access it. Yeah. The post. It's, it's difficult with medical records. Though. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's really difficult. Exactly. And a woman who was on our trust for a little while is also the chair of the public records office, and she said that there's becoming a much higher demand for people who were um, adopted or part of an IVF program to see whether they can figure out whether there's any hereditary health conditions. Um, and that that's starting to become uh, apparently a thing for prof because the people saying, well, and then they go, oh, we got permission from the adoption, blah, blah. I like that the complexity around health records is quite substantial. But the architectural stuff is super you know, interesting and working um, occasionally, like just working on this grant application has been really fun because the woman who's the architect who's helping out was going, oh no, that species wouldn't have been. I'm like, oh, well, this one will grow, <laughs> it looks like. But it's, a kind, it's really interesting looking at old photos, most of them taken actually from that corner of Swanson and um, Lonsdale, so you can't, not many of them are totally facing the building, but you can see in one, you know, in one era, tall poplar trees, in another era, a whole lot of um, palm trees, and you know, it's really quite a big variety of. of would, it, would it be possible to recreate it though with the wind tunnel? No. Um, it's really tight. Yeah. 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 So I think we go with a kind of we're going Not up. A scrub. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, there's all of those sort of Edwardian vibe plants that actually like hellebores and all that sort of stuff that will grow low and don't need a lot of sun and then the, the big deal will be well should we even be saying we'll grow tall trees and what the architect will say no no they'll dig in under the foundations and then yeah and then that gum tree I don't know what drug someone was to plant a gum tree you know in a gutter there it's not doing well and it's going to fall on someone's head one day so you know there's those sorts of funny just kooky decisions were made along the way um and then bits of the archival material or on the walls downstairs in the shopping centre, all sorts of funny things like this. This, yeah, someone who's a talent. Like planner. a weird hot concept vortex where yeah. people just keep on having hot concepts and not following. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. So we just want to cut some off. We actually really would love to have veggie beds on that wall because that is relatively protected and does get some sun. And we were thinking it would make uh, an attempt to address the beer bottles and stuff over the fence, that making it more attractive would make it something that people would be more respectful of. And we'll see. Maybe, yeah. So I'm not out there with the pinchy thing, getting the, getting the bottles and cans out of the, out of the gutter. Yeah. So, so shall I leave you all to have a cup of tea and a gossip about what's going on at work? Yeah, <laughs> I think that sounds amazing. Thank you so much. Thank for... you. That was Joe Porter, CEO of the Queen Victoria Women's Centre. Thanks for listening, folks. If you'd like to get in touch with New Cardigan, you can find us on Twitter, Instagram and Facebook or at our website, www.newcardigan.org. We hope you have enjoyed this episode. Remember to keep an ear out for more Cardicasts and check out our website at newcardigan.org for events, merchandise, news and more. And remember folks, JFDI.